Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Rev. Dave Kiefer. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20, we read this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration which Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them and into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Uh, This evening, I'll be focusing just on the first 14 verses there, uh, rather than all 20, which we read earlier. I don't know about you, but what was your most memorable Christmas? When I was nine, I came down with the flu on Christmas. It ruined the whole day. My head hurt, my stomach ached. I didn't even have the energy to open my gifts, much less much less enjoy them. It it was terrible. Ironically, that Christmas, one of the gifts I received uh, was a toy medical kit (laughs) that included uh, blood pressure cufflings, a stethoscope, and a thermometer. A similar thing happened when I was 28. Around 10.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve, my stomach started to rumble. 20 minutes later, I was doubled over in the bathroom And that unpleasant experience repeated itself throughout the night. 
I was not merely unhappy, I was exhausted. Now, thankfully, most holidays have been nothing like the misery of those two Christmases. They've been filled with laughter and joy, with fellowship, warmth, with feasting and comfort. But as I've reflected on the first Christmas, the day that Jesus was born, it's very clear it was anything but pleasant and restful and comfortable. It was more like those two terrible Christmases that I endured. Mary and Joseph were exhausted from traveling miles on foot only to face the frustration of finding no vacancies in Bethlehem at the end. And the anger that so little help was offered to them in their time of need. And the stress of a young man whose beloved was about to have her first child. And the anxiety that Mary, that teenage girl, must have endured as she was forced into labor at the most inconvenient time in the most uncomfortable place. See, the wonder of the first Christmas was far removed from what we've come to associate with wonder. See, we associate light at Christmas trees, but there was no light at Christmas trees, no stockings hung with care by the hearth, no milk and cookies, no candy canes, no ma and pa nestled down for a long winter's nap, no child nestled snug in his bed. No, Christmas was full of wonder that first Christmas, but not the kind associated with comfort nor the type associated with fantasy. The wonder of Christmas, the one we just read about in Luke chapter 2, is, is captured in two words, history and mystery. First, history If the opening words of a story are, once upon a time, you know you're about to read a fantasy. Or if the opening words are, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know you're about to read science fiction, an epic science fiction. But if you read, as we did there in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and further information says that this happened while Quirinius was governor. And external sources confirmed that these were real people and real places, and the dates and the times lined up correctly, which they do, then then you know you're not reading a made-up story, but a real report of history. And the wonder of Christmas is not like the wonder of fairy tales or science fiction. Star Wars is amazing, even though it really didn't happen. There's no Clone Wars, kids. It's amazing because it appeals to the imagination, Jedi Knights and Sith Lords and lightsabers. But the story of Christmas is wonderful because it actually happened. And even though it's hard to believe, this, Luke chapter 2, is the true story of Christmas. And that very first Christmas shows us that God is at work in history, not, not remotely or at a distance, but he comes up close and personal. God himself comes, he pierces time and space. He has come near in a person with DNA and human flesh. God's son, the second person of the Trinity, was born as a baby in Bethlehem. And as we read the story We learn that every part of Jesus' birth was planned out by God himself from long ago. 
And the Christmas story reminds us that that even when we can't see God's hand at work, he remains in full control. At Christmas, God was orchestrating every event, every ordinary thing, even humiliating things to reveal himself and to reveal his glory. And it all happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus, whose real name was Octavian. He was given the title Caesar because he was the first Roman ruler to bring the entire empire under his control when he defeated Anthony and Cleopatra. Augustus was kind of a nickname which meant one who inspires reverence and awe. Caesar Augustus commanded so much respect that an inscription proclaimed him the savior of the world. Few leaders of history had ever accumulated as much power and popularity as Octavian, the Caesar we meet here in Luke chapter 2. So it's ironic that under his reign, the real savior of the world would be born. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Over time, most would forget the name Octavian, but the name of Jesus would be the basis upon which we divide time, B.C. and A.D. Phil Riken pointed out that although, although Caesar would never know it, when he declared a census should be taken, he unleashed a chain of events that would set in motion a series of things that would fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. Hundreds of years before the prophet Micah 5, the prophet Micah foretold in Micah 5.2 that from Bethlehem shall come the ruler of Israel whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. And all it took was a word from the emperor and people thousands of miles away had to return to their ancestral home. And as they do, the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall into place. Because this census would cause a young man named Joseph, who was living living in northern Israel at the time, in a region called Galilee, in a town called Nazareth, to make a 90-mile journey southward across rugged terrain to his ancestral home in Bethlehem so that he could register for the census with his pregnant fiancée, Mary. And in verse 6, we read, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. See, the wonder of Christmas is that God is at work in history. God is working out an extraordinary plan through the ordinary events of political leaders. David Gooding adds this, For Augustus, the taking of the census was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here's the funny thing, in the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, Son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal, sent, uh, his royal ancestry, just as God's prophets had foretold. How does this all apply? We need to remember who is really in charge of all of human history. It may look like human leaders and rulers are calling the shots, whether it's with census policy or COVID policy. 
But God ultimately works through every human event to accomplish his good and perfect plan, even when they come as very inconvenient interruptions. Even when we cannot see him at work, we can take comfort that nothing frustrates God's good plan. So we can have courage that God uses ordinary things like a census registration to accomplish great things. What great things might God do through the interruptions in your life. The wonder of Christmas is not the wonder of fairy tales. It's not the wonder of a a fanciful imagination. It's the wonder of God working in and through human events in a way no one would ever imagine, often in ways so common we would never even notice them had we been there. That's the wonder of Christmas. God's invisible hand made visible. So that's the first word that describes the wonder of Christmas, history. The second one, mystery. And there's two mysteries. One is the mystery of God's humility, and the second, the mystery of God's grace. First, God's humility. Look at verse 7. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, as Luke tells this story, there's a constant contrast between Caesar and Jesus. Caesar gets all the glory. Again, it's Caesar Augustus, meaning the one who inspires reverence and admiration. And people are registering so that they can pay proper tribute to Caesar as king, who, like I said, they referred to as the savior of the world. Caesar gets all the the positive publicity. But Jesus gets ignored. Upon his arrival, he couldn't even get a room in the inn. Everyone was too preoccupied. The welcome that Jesus received was nothing like the welcome he deserved as the true Son of God and Savior of the world. See, he deserved to be born in the grandest palace and placed in a golden cradle. Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation send him gifts. He deserved to have every person and every creature ever made worshiping him. As the Son of God, anything less than a joyful and humble acknowledgement of his divine rights and supreme royalty was an insult. But the welcome Jesus received was nothing like the welcome he deserved. And when Luke mentions that there was no room at the end, you might picture like a hotel. But some scholars think the biblical term, kavalyama, can refer to a private dwelling. More likely, it's, it's probably a guest house. Whatever the case, by today's standards, the inn would have been primitive. Probably a common room that traveling strangers would be forced to share, share together. And since no one made room for this young woman who was near to going into labor, Joseph took the next best accommodation, which was out with the animals. And we know this because Jesus was placed in a manger. And kids, a manger is a feeding trough for animals. Now the text doesn't tell us how the manger was constructed. Maybe it was made of wood. More likely it was made of stone. But honestly, it could have been a place hollowed out in the ground, a shallow hole. Isn't that amazing? The God of glory, when he arrives, he's placed in a hole. 
Perhaps Mary went into labor in a small shed, maybe a barn-like structure. The text doesn't describe it with much detail. But one early Christian from the second century says that in Bethlehem, animals were often kept in caves. And according to Justin Martyr, he writes, since Joseph had nowhere to lodge in that village, he lodged in a certain cave near the village. Whatever the conditions, we don't know, the text doesn't say, we do know they were squalid, not just uncomfortable. They were smelly and dirty. And it's hard to imagine a more miserable place for a teenage girl to go into labor for the first time. Kent Hughes vividly imagines the scene this way, the sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to heaven for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acid straw and a contempt, made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly, his face grimacing as he grasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. See, everything we know about Jesus' birth points to indignity. Jesus was born in obscurity. Everyone's too preoccupied to bother or to help. And even at his birth, we see that Jesus was rejected. The welcome Jesus received was nothing like the welcome he deserved. So the question is, why did the father allow his son to come into the world in such a miserable, humiliating way? And the answer is to melt our hearts with his amazing love. And a love that was willing to become this humble to prove how perfect his love was. A classmate of mine recently told me about his first Christmas as a married man. He had secured discounted rent in his uh, apartment by agreeing to be on the, uh, the on-call janitor. Uh, his neighbors would call him directly when anything went wrong. And if he could handle the issue, he would, whether it's replacing a light bulb or plunging a toilet or checking out the circuit breaker. But beyond that, uh, if he couldn't handle it, he was responsible to investigate the problem and call in professionals to help as needed. And since his number was the first listed for emergencies in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve, he was startled out of his sleep by a ringing phone. A renter had gone down into the basement to change over their laundry and noticed discolored, smelly water all over the floor. The sewage line was blocked. And in a couple of hours, he knew that everyone in the building would be up, running showers, flushing toilets, and if my friend didn't get it fixed, it would be a terrible Christmas morning for everyone. And he wasn't exactly sure what to do. There was not a single professional plumber who was going to answer the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. So my friend was in a panic Should he use the limited time he had to knock on every door, knowing that this would make his neighbors angry, but at least it would prevent them from making the problem worse by running showers and flushing toilets? Instead of doing that, he decided to try to clear the blockage in the main sewer line himself, without going into all the details of how. 
Suffice it to say that eventually he cleared the blockage, but not with getting all of that filth on him. And as he was mopping up and feeling sorry for himself, sorry for himself because he was actually going through a very difficult time in life, and this situation seemed a metaphorical reflection of how his life was going at the time. And, And this man's a pastor, and he had some choice words for God. He thought he deserved better than all of this. And he was angry as he's mopping up this mess saying, really, God, of all days, Christmas morning, you had to let this happen on Christmas morning. And while he was mopping up the filth and muck, God placed a strange question into his mind. It was an uninvited question. But the question was this, what better day than Christmas? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Isn't this what I did? I came and cleaned up the filth of the world. I humbled myself. I was born into filth to clean up the filth. People of filth pressed around me every day. And I died on a cross absorbing the filth and sin of the world in order to clean it up. And in a flash, my friend's self-pitying anger melted into indescribable joy as he saw with fresh eyes the perfect, humble love of his Savior that would do that for him joyfully. It changed the way he mopped up the rest of the mess. And he said, Dave, that was the best Christmas ever. That's the wonder of Christmas. Letting God's amazing love, perfectly humble, sink down into your heart and melt your heart and draw you close to see the glory of God. The whole pattern of Jesus' life was humility from his birth to his death. Riken says it this way, the same body that was wrapped in swaddling cloths was also wrapped in a burial shroud. He entered the world bloodied by the curse of Eve. He exited bloodied by the hatred of men. Why would God submit himself to such indignity, rejections, and suffering? Because he knew it was the only way that we might truly be delivered from what captivates us. And what captivates us is more than just sinful behavior, but it's a heart determined to be king, to try to find life apart from God. A heart that doesn't trust God and his goodness because we live in a broken world and so he comes in the only way that will break through our stubborn, sinful, arrogant hearts and show us he's a God of love. That's the wonder of Christmas. It's a mystery. It changes our hearts and it cleanses us from sin. Norval Geldinghais pointed this out. He said, what the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. See how cold cold our preoccupations can become? Even we who claim to know better, we who celebrate his birth, do you make room for Jesus? Do you make as much room for Jesus as you make for Santa and his elves? 
Dear ones, have you neglected to make room for Jesus this Christmas Eve, the Son of God? What place do you give him in your feelings and affections, in your thoughts and considerations, in your plans and decisions? Turn to him. See his amazing, humble love and make room in your heart for Jesus. The second mystery is God's grace. Another wonder of Christmas is the amazing grace of God for despite our preoccupations, our distractions, our hard-heartedness, our refusal to trust God and to believe in his goodness, in this passage we see that God patiently bears witness to his son so that we might see his glory and be swept up into worshiping him with the heavenly host. You notice in verse 8, in verse 8 it says, in that same region there's shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appears to them. The glory of the Lord shones, shines around them, and they're filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Though no one at the inn made room for Jesus that night, It was not right for Jesus' birth to go unrecognized. It had to be celebrated. And even this, God had planned from long ago. For there's an often overlooked prophecy in Jeremiah 33 that foretold that God would send the Messiah as shepherds of Judea were watching their flocks. It says this, in the cities of the hill country, the places about Jerusalem, and that would include Bethlehem, about six miles away, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them. At that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and Judah will be saved. Why did God choose shepherds to celebrate Jesus' birth? There are many reasons people have speculated. I want to share one. Shepherds in that region were the ones who raised the lambs that were used at the temple sacrifice for the Passover. So a shepherd would be a fitting way to announce the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the ones whose blood, when applied by faith, would cause the angel of death to pass over them, allowing them to go free from captivity. See, the wonder of Christmas is found not only in the humility of God, but the grace of God is reflected in the face of Jesus, that true Lamb of God, the innocent one who came as a substitute to die in our place, to pay our full penalty for all the rebelliousness in our hearts and disobedience and thanklessness and apathy and indifference toward God and toward others. He did it for us so that we could be reconciled to God and he was the perfect sacrifice for he lived the perfect life loving and obeying God from beginning to end, doing so joyfully, cleaning up the mess, even in obscurity when people refused to thank him and would eventually beat him and betray him instead. So this is why the portal opens and the angels of God are revealed in the heavenly dimension. They can't help. This cannot not be celebrated. And so they sing, glory to God, in the highest and on earth, peace to men. In closing, dear ones, this is the wonder of Christmas, the history. This is a real story of Christmas, of God acting in history, penetrating time and space so that we can know him and be restored to him. The mystery of Christmas, the mystery of God's grace and humility. 
And like the angel, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. I love that phrase, unto you. It's sort of like the little labels we put on Christmas gifts. From God to you. What a gift. If you have not received this gift, I plead with you. Open your heart to the true gift of Christmas and behold the wonder of God's love for you. Let us pray. God, thank you for, thank you for Jesus. Those words are, are too shallow, they're too small. How could we ever thank you for what you have done? You gave of yourself, you gave of your son who came who came close that we might behold your glory and he came in the most least threatening way as a baby so that we might know that when you came, you came not to threaten us, but to woo us, to woo us back to yourself, that we might see your perfect love and it might melt our hearts to see what you are doing to win back a rebellious people to yourself. God, thank you for sending Jesus who lived the life we know we should live to save us from the one we have, that perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us trust in him, not just intellectually, but each and every day as the one who makes us right with you, the one who gives us confidence to live before you with joy. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.